Case 46 from the Mumankan, stepping forward from the top of a pole. The main case. Master Sakiso said, how will you step forward from the top of a hundred foot pole? Another eminent master of old said, even though one who is sitting on the top of a hundred foot pole has entered realization, it is not yet real. He must step forward from the top of the pole and manifest his whole body throughout the world in ten directions. Mumon's commentary, if you can step forward and turn your body around, there will be no place left where you are not the master. Even so, just tell me, how do you step forward from the top of a hundred foot pole? A. The verse, making the eye on the forehead blind, one clings to the first mark on the scale. Even throwing away body and life, one blind person leads many blind people. <clears throat> My vision of being atop this hundred foot pole has evolved since I first read this koan. I used to think of it as a place of desperation clinging onto the pole at this dizzying height for dear life and not quite knowing how I got there. Now I picture life atop the pole as more accommodating, a more comfortable perch from which to look out upon the world. I have both consciously and unconsciously, along with my culture, made up a story about how I got here and why I think the view from here shows things as they really are. Whatever construction of reality we have made, or was made for us, there is still an eye which identifies with this construction, and which sits atop the hundred-foot pole overseeing its domain. The higher the pole, the more it thinks it can see and claim for its own. Yet the higher the pole, the more isolated it becomes, and the more it clings to its reality. The pole is really only in touch with the earth at one point. The rest of our elevated experience is dependent upon the five skandhas, those means by which we experience our world, which so easily can turn our provisional self into an independent overseer of his or her domain, a dualistic self that endures atop her or his constructed reality, instead of provisionally arising anew in every moment. This problem of the lingering provisional self is my topic for today. The hundred-foot pole is the provisional self we build to deal with the situation at this point in space and time in order to do our part in the dharma of the moment. But the tendency is strong to linger, to admire our handiwork, to build a little house on our perch atop the hundred-foot pole. In the Shoyuoko case 70, Chosao advances a step. Another version of this koan begins by Chosao sending a monk to question a hermit about the changes in his life as a result of having studied with Nansen. The hermit evidently took his realization experience and retreated with it to a mountain hut atop his hundred-foot pole. He experienced some opening, but then became attached to this opening, which in turn closed him off from further openings. Chosel uses a poem to summarize the case. The man clinging atop the hundred-foot pole Though he has gained entry, this is not yet the real. Atop the hundred-foot pole, he should step forward. The universe in all directions is the whole body.
In my Tay show at the end of Spring Angam, I discussed my experimenting with consciously expanding myself into becoming one with ever more of my experience. Previously, most of my time on the cushion was spent trying to diminish or at least pay less attention to myself, to quiet the monkey mind and the desires and problems taking me out of the present. For Spring Ango, I took a different approach, using the eight awarenesses of an enlightened person to help envision a more positive sense of practice. That is, instead of starving the self, I was trying to engage the self in a positive way, to help the self diminish by experiencing its own shortcomings and opening us into a greater existence. Chosa above said, though he has gained entry, this is not yet the real. The question continues of what is this I which consci consciously seeks this expansion of my experience and yet seems to disappear in the realization that form is exactly emptiness and emptiness exactly form. How can I expand from my I-centered orientation in the world, including my practice, to a larger sense of consciousness, a larger sense of presence, encompassing the local aches and pains of my body, the commentaries of my mind, the relationships of my family and friends, and beyond these, to include all the other things I experience. My conscious notion of my individuated I needs to expand along with the consciousness of the reality I am aware of. The I that is looking in the mirror needs to become as plural as the mirrors. Thus, the experimenting in my own practice has evolved to think about the vocabulary we use when examining our individual practices and to suggest moving from I awareness to we awareness. The practice here is to expand the sense of I in such a way as to weaken the traditional means by which we have learned to identify ourselves as independent causal centers in a subject versus object relation to the rest of our experience, and instead to develop a sense of an I informed by impermanence, interconnection, and co-arising. That is, a provisional sense of I which exists in and for the moment. And the suggestion here is that developing a sense of this momentary presence as a we might be worth trying. Our culture encourages each of us to create a hundred-foot pole of our uniqueness with the distinctions that make each of us who we are. Daibo last week asked each of us to consider who am I, and our culture rushes in to answer before any problem arises. We are each members of a particular family, community, country, profession, political party, a demographic such as age, gender, ethnicity, and other census-type categories. All of these work together to construct our supposed uniqueness and actual isolation. Each distinction creates a gap by which we are cut off from other people. How men are different from women, youth from elderly, north from south, east from west, libertarians from socialists, and so on and on and on. We are made to believe that these differences, that these are truly differences which make a difference. Upaya is the awareness of the tools that our situation provides for us, the resources both within and around us, and the ability to bring them to bear on the present situation. The traditional pronouns we would use to describe the 100-foot pole situation are those resources are available to me and how I am able to make use of them. 
But during the last decade or so, there has arisen a focus upon the pronouns that we use in our everyday speech when we engage in so, such self-presentation and reflection. There has been much discussion and expansion of gender identities pushed beyond the apparent dualistic male-female body types to include female identity in a male body and vice versa with the appropriate shift in pronouns and then into a more fluid gender identity reflected in plural pronouns such as they and theirs. We can build upon this exploration of the pronouns we use and use it to examine how the use of the pronouns we have developed has created another dualistic straitjacket, that of I and you or I and other. As our awareness and consciousness expand, the identity of where this behavior occurs benefits from a broader pronoun, perhaps, to articulate this experience. And this is where I've been exploring the move from I to we. Over the last year, we have made a number of opportunities, we have had a number of opportunities, to explore this question of how to expand the conscious, provisional, interdependent I, while diminishing the independent, dualistically identified I. Several of our workshops during the last two ongo periods, examining acceptance and wholeheartedness, have engaged in activities dealing with helping us to recognize our perch atop our 100-foot poles, from which we survey our world, and how we might expand our realm of conscious interaction beyond its limited contact with the world. The acceptance through listening workshop helped us move from defensive listening, thank you, but my purchase fine just the way it is, to compassionate listening in which we listen for the sameness among the differences in our common humanity. Compassion meaning our ability to experience together, recognizing myself in people both near and far. The six lessons gave a good description of the progression from moving from I to we beginning with learning to listen to oneself with compassion, then extending this to other selves most like us, our family and friends, then extending to strangers, and then extending to selves least like us, those we consider difficult, including observing ourselves as also difficult persons to others. And finally, dissolving the boundary between self and other with compassionate acceptance. The Zen art and poetry workshop organized a series of experiences in nature that helped us explore moving beyond our habitual boundaries that guide us as we move through space and time. Our sensations, perceptions, and observations rarely move outside of our comfort zones. And the exercises of this workshop had us looking far over the edge of our constructive purchase. The invitation to creatively express our experiences often provided the push to take the first step into the void. These creations connected us intimately with our new experiences of a larger I and brought home the momentary immediacy of the creative act. The I that creates an expression of the situation at this moment also creates an I which can only be at this moment. As the number of these intimate momentary experiences grows, the identifying with each of them makes me see myself as increasingly plural, increasingly more of an expanding provisional we. 
The focusing workshop helped us develop a technique for discovering and then coming into communication with the many parts of ourselves that dwell within us. These are the internal voices that provide the running commentary for our lives, encouraging and discouraging us as we plan to act, criticizing or defending us, enabling or crippling us, and many more. The presence of these parts is often expressed as a felt sense in our bodies, and focusing helps us give a voice to these sensations and bring the parts into more direct communication with each other and with us. Just as in sitting, we are so just as in sitting, we sometimes think we should get rid of bad ideas or too many ideas, so in focusing, we are tempted to get rid of the parts we do not like. But focusing helps us realize that all of the parts are us. All have value and a place in our complicated being. We are really a community of parts corralled behind the illusion of a singular eye. We are each a we. The pranayama and yin yoga workshop provided us with new experiences with our bodies, which were also experienced by everyone else in the group. We often think of our experiences as our individual possessions, and doing exercise in a group raises the sameness and differences questions that we have been exploring. The physical experience of sustained rapid breathing or remaining in plank for a minute or two has slight variations for each practitioner. Yet it is only possible because we all share the same human physiology. My downward dog may attract compliments, but it is due to my species, not how I personally design myself. Yoga can feel isolating when I cannot do what everyone else seems to be able to do with their bodies. But there's also the experience of merging when everyone, for instance, flows through a sun salutation together. My body expands to a we of undifferentiated bodies doing the same physical experience, which seemed even more pronounced in the long-held poses of the yin yoga in the spring. Another practice during Ango was my invitation to join me in keeping a daily diary of our Ango experiences, mental, physical, and spiritual. When I can trust my process of writing, journaling becomes something like the mosh pit of the mind. Similar to the exploration of felt sense we experience in focusing, many ideas come to us when writing. We're used to filtering them according to what will be most useful and what will write now further my topic. But in journaling, also called process writing, all ideas are created equal and worth a look. They can all hold up my mind while I'm being passed from one on to the next. The idea most wanting to be discussed might only be taking form while we try various opening paragraphs in the first draft. What to me is the evident, clear, and convincing order of my argument often does not work for my audience, who are hearing about all this for the first time. Then comes the revising, which can seem like musical chairs, with sentences and paragraphs running around, some disappearing, others getting new identities, and I am left with a new presentation seemingly not entirely of my own making. There is the engineering part of me still clinging to ideas of efficiency, but then also the expansive part of me walking off into the unknown, such as wondering where in the world do these ideas come from, and then stepping off the pole. 
I have now examined several of the ways in which we have already been experiencing the plurality within ourselves and how this plurality can enable more experience of interconnectedness, interdependence, and impermanence. For the whole remains the whole, even as the parts change, as they always do. I have suggested that moving to seeing ourselves as we instead of I <coughs> might be helpful in dealing with the I that seems to return regardless of time spent on the cushion or number of realization experiences. This I that claims some merit for its progress and gets new furniture for the perch atop the 100-foot pole. But the move to we can also bring psychological and emotional difficulties. The personal relations to spouse, children, and other family and friends do not always expand so easily. Royalty provide an interesting example of the human experience between the singular and the plural. Traditionally, the monarch of a country literally embodies the country, and thus is no longer a singular individual. The ruler is no longer an I, but uses the royal we in speaking of him or herself. This is not a spiritual practice necessarily on the way to understanding emptiness, but it is an often difficult psychological practice in similar sameness and difference. How can the ruler incorporate the important unities among their subjects while also respecting their practical differences? Can the ruler have any individual differences themselves, or must they conform to the qualities which unite the country as a whole? Let's take the example of the king or queen of England. He or she does not merely represent England. He or she is England. When England lost its American colonies after the American Revolutionary War, ending in 1783, King George felt physically ill for many months, as he experienced this as a physical loss in his body and mind. There's an excellent movie which discusses this, The Madness of King George, um, available somewhere around streaming, I'm sure. Netflix has also been providing an exploration of the realities of living in such an experience with its current series, The Crown, about the life of Queen Elizabeth II of England. She never expected to become queen, as her father Albert was the second son of King George V, and so unlikely to become king. However, his brother Edward did become king, but valued his individual 100-foot pole more than merging into England and so abdicated to marry his twice-divorced sweetheart, creating a great scandal in 1936. Elizabeth was now next in line, but thought she had many years to be a wife and mother before becoming queen upon the death of her father. But he died early at age 56, making her become queen when she was only 26. The Netflix series deals with her sudden evolution from I to we. From a young, independent wife, mother, and citizen of England, to becoming England itself. There's a Christian phrase which seems to be applicable here. Not my will be done, but thy will be done. Where thy, for the royalty here, is England, just as in Buddhism, it seems to be the Dharma. Elizabeth's difficulties adjusting to life as we, when she had a husband, children, and friends who related to her as an I, occupy the first two seasons of this series. While as queen she has become the head of every English family, her husband feels he should lead their own family as he has always done before. 
while she wishes she could eat or dress or take a walk as she did before, she can now only behave as England would behave, doing only those actions that unite rather than divide the people, which often means doing nothing. However, though her identity encompasses all of England, she worries that she cannot feel for the lives of her citizens, that her compassion is limited. This may be the case with many of us as well. Our life in the Dharma may be expanding, but our, idea, our ability to feel into the lives of others might still be limited by our notions of individuation and independence. Elizabeth might often appear remote to us atop her royal pole, but she has left her comfortable perch many times in the palace to visit families in times of disaster and work to end apartheid in former colonies and help them develop as members of the Commonwealth instead of the empire. As queen, she was given herself large enough to occupy many poles, and yet she has quietly and in her own way demonstrated taking that first step. I want to emphasize that what I am suggesting is a way of self-visualizing, which is a provisional and traditional practice addressing the problems involved in our traditional and reoccurring, oh, sorry, let me do that sentence again. I want to emphasize that what I am suggesting is a way of visualizing, which is a provisional and transitional practice, addressing the problems involved in our traditional and reoccurring perception of ourselves. We have learned to see ourselves as independent instead of interconnected and co-arising, as continuous in time and space, that I am the same self yesterday as today, as having knowledge and direct agency which means that I can fully know any situation I happen to be in and know exactly what I am doing when acting in any situation, as well as uh, all of the consequences which follow from it. This breeds in us an illusion that I am in charge and in control. On the other hand, experiencing myself as plural, as merging, as in a commonwealth with the physical and psychological things I experience, to maintain the differences apparent in the provisional world of action and also the unity of the Dharma may help me make that step off the perch feel more like a walk in the park. I will let Sekada and Senzaki have the last word taken from their comments upon this koan. First, Sekada's comment. When you have made considerable progress in your Zen practice, you come to a sort of extremity where you find yourself on the brink of an abyss that is veiled in complete darkness. Suddenly you are scared. You feel that there is no knowing what calamity may follow if you proceed a step further into the darkness. In Zazen practice, consciousness comes nearly to a stop. And when a Zen student first experiences this, he often becomes panic-stricken. It is just as if he were trembling on top of a pole. But Zen masters require you to let your hands go and proceed further. What follows? The great death occurs. The activity of consciousness stops. You jump into the abyss. But don't worry, no calamity ensues. Throw away your enlightenment. In other words, throw away all that you have achieved. Throw away your original nature. Buddhahood, Dharma, ordinary mind, everything. Be reduced to emptiness. Cast away even the emptiness. This is proceeding on further from the top of a hundred foot pole. What sort of thing is it to be coming down? 
It is returning to the world to admit and embrace people of all types. Unless you achieve that capacious sort of mind, your practice cannot be said to be successful. And to this, Sanzaki adds, you seek wisdom higher and higher, but your influence of loving kindness should be wider and wider. You come to this Zendo to meditate. After you finish your meditation, next you will have your tea. And after the third cup, you will go home. Now, are you thus proceeding or retreating on the road to Zen? Thank you.